Um, so thank you so much for coming down to ACCA tonight. My name is Annika Christensen and I'm the curator of this current exhibition, Greater Together. These guys are happy chatting away, but tonight it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dutch artists Lisbeth Bick and Jos van der Poel, who have worked together as artistic collaborators since 1994, a division of labour that is both conscious and political. Their mode of working, which is a collaborative and consultative process, consists of setting up conditions for encounter to encourage communication and exchange. I've had the pleasure of working with Lisbeth and Jos since probably about November last year, when I extended an open invitation to them to create a new work for this exhibition. I'd seen their work last year at both Media City Seoul and the Gwangju Biennale in Korea, and I was struck by the generosity of their practice and the ways in which they extended their own collaboration to work with the communities in which their work, which is often site-specific, is situated. I also have a particularly fond memory um, of briefly meeting them halfway up a very steep mountain in Guangzhou on a ridiculously humid day as part of an activity that had been organised by the Biennale. And I can attest that sweat, exhaustion and inadequate hiking attire proves a really good way of cutting through some of the kind of more formal pleasantries that exist in the art world. So tonight, Lisbeth and Jos will talk a little bit about their collaborative ways of working. They'll discuss some of their past projects and unpack some of the ideas that have informed their work for this exhibition, Letters to the Land. At the end of the presentation, there'll be some time for everyone to kind of uh, ask their own questions. So please save them up for the end and we'll have a microphone that comes around. So for now, please join me in welcoming Lisbeth and Jos. Us. Thank you, Annika. So I'm Lisbeth, this is Jos, uh, and if everything works well, there is going to be an image. No, you have to push this one. Yeah. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, we will talk you through a couple of projects. At some point, maybe we will have too many projects, so just give me a sign eh, if you yeah. say, like, stop, because we, we like if we have time for discussion or questions or you know but I thought we thought like it would be good to to introduce ourselves through our work instead of having some kind of a meta discussion or a meta level uh, lecture about uh, the backgrounds of it so better for us to talk through examples so um, we started working, shall I start with India? Yeah. We started working together in 95, 94, um, before I was a painter, Jos was a sculptor, and we were both part of an artist initiative, an artist-run space that we set up together with other people uh, since 1984, so that's a long, long time ago. <laughs> And I think it's important to tell because um, uh, the, I would say that the roots of our uh, collaborative practice is in that artist-run space. So even if we were individually working, we also um, were very much involved in setting up exhibitions uh, with other artists, uh, uh, setting up talks at lectures, we had guest studios because we felt it was really important to be able to bring artists from the outside to Rotterdam and then Rotterdamers would be going back, we are from Rotterdam obviously, obviously. and at that time in the 80s there was actually nothing, Annie has been spending time in Rotterdam for two years but you know then it was really exciting compared to uh, what we sort of encountered when we were there because everything was boarded up and there was perhaps mainly 
I would say for an artist, two ways that you can go. Either you leave that city because there's nothing, or you stay and you make something. So that's what we, and actually also many other artists, uh, did. There is an art school, so there was something that was holding us together or bringing us together. And from, let's say, all these opportunities of nothing being there, there was a lot of space, though, on the other hand. So lots of empty buildings, etc. So that actually uh, uh, made all sorts of opportunities for different artists to uh, set up platforms, because there was nothing where they could show. So that was one of the main drives behind all these initiatives. And um, uh, so after painting away, let's say, and sculpting away for 10 years, <laughs> we thought, oh, well, no, let's work together. No, it didn't go like that. But <laughs> so that's a little bit. So anyway, this is the first work that we did together. It's called The Kitchen Piece, and it's actually made with a third person, Peter Fillingham from Great Britain. He was also a guest in our studio. And after many, um, uh, I would say, drunken evenings of parties, etc. Many people came to our place in the attic where Jos was living. So it was a little bit like an open, very generous place where everybody always came. And at some point we thought, okay, maybe now we have enough partying somehow. It became a bit boring. And then we thought we have to build something. So then the three of us started to uh, uh, work on, on the kitchen piece, which is um, an exact copy of uh, of Jos's kitchen in that same space. So on the left hand you see the original and on the right hand you see the copy which was right at the other end of the space. So the space was maybe if, if this would be the space but then straight you know the, re the real one would be there but you would enter let's say and you had to sort of go around the copy and then you would enter that space where two copies were facing each other. Mirror image. And this copy was built from all sorts of bits of pieces from the building where we just moved in. So it was really like, you know, digesting the building, digesting working together somehow and creating something else than this party-like atmosphere, but emphasizing on the fact that everybody always is in the kitchen when there is a party. I don't know if you have that as well, no? Yeah. Probably. It's universal, no? <coughs> yeah, but I, <coughs> I think it's also, that also had to do, we, we try to stimulate also Discussions beyond, you know, if uh, if it's this is a, you could see it as a sculpture or it's just as a copy, and the whole idea was also one was functional because I had to build it moving in into the building, so everything was functional. The other one at that point was not functional, but directly the plan was to move the copy the. <coughs> to copy to somewhere else, also to try to generate the same energy in a different setting. So the first place we moved the, the copy to was in uh, 1995 to London, the UK, to Qubit Gallery, which was comparable in a way. It was also 50 studios, artists run, they had a gallery, and there was no meeting place. So we had a show together with uh, Tessa Dean, in the meantime, she's very famous. We are less famous, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <coughs> and then uh, the people from Qubit, and there the, the kitchen was totally functional. So people really came came down to the gallery to eat, to cook, and to meet, and also discuss. And uh, we asked an, a friend of us, a filmmaker, to make a film, a black and white, um, 60 mil film. 
about the original settings, so there was some sort of reference where the kitchen came from also. And after that, we were asked to move the kitchen to the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam. I don't know if you're familiar. It's <coughs> and it was uh, a very nice place because this was, uh, the kitchen was put on the place where the keynotes was, or the, the beanery. And the beanery had to be renovated, so they moved the beanery away. And I think it's interesting now to see it because that, at that time um, the kitchen was totally functional so people were cooking in the museum so the museum was in a way you could you could smell the the, the coffee the food the, the curry and all the, the all sorts of things and I think nowadays you can't imagine that it's doable because of uh, health and safety regulations but then you know we had brought bottle of gas in we had this cooker and there was also <coughs> a difference because we thought in the museum it's it's different. So we asked a friend from us from London who was uh, part of building the kitchen to host the kitchen. And actually you can see him sitting there or standing behind the sink. So he was there uh, seven days a week from 10 till, because the museum at that time was open till 10 at night. And so he was in a way like hosting, living inside the museum, because we thought also to bridge, you know, to, to bridge the, the whole thing. Otherwise, people would just stand there and looking at, it, at the thing and then not knowing where it's from. And it's also interesting, the middle image, it's the main art critic in uh, the Netherlands. And he didn't go in, he thought it was, nonsense and you think you have to think at 1996 at that time so that's fine next yeah. <laughs> uh, then we made another copy uh, this was 1996 also yeah so actually a little bit right after that this is um, uh, like we, we were spending a lot of time between Rotterdam and London and in Rotterdam like I said there wasn't much um, uh, things happening there was also not a bookshop like in london or like you have in london so many bookshops so there was i would i feel there was a, a huge lack and i would say that our work uh, sort of responds to these kind of lacks that are in a way very site specific no to a, sp a specific city so at some point we we thought okay why don't we just make this in rotterdam so we went a lot to the ICA bookshop. I don't know if any of you is familiar with it in the Institute of Contemporary Art. It's a small one. No, it's I think 250, 260 wide in a square somehow. And um, uh, that bookshop was so exciting to us because you always were, when you went there, you never knew what you were searching for, but it was somehow finding you. So there was always, let's say, these books, these things that you that you... Uh, that sort of grabbed you somehow. So it was, and that part I, th I think of that excitement was also the small size of it, the very concentrated size, but also maybe the way how the bookshop was curated and the way that uh, uh, the manager uh, bought books and, and thought about um, uh, what would be interesting and good in a certain time. So we started um, uh, measuring, uh, this is analog times, eh? the it was only fax machines at that time, no internet or practically no internet. So um, we started measuring the bookshop, 
there in the measure tape. And then we started making slides uh, of the uh, no analog, uh, no digital photography. So we uh, thought, how do we get all these books? So we photographed everything, documented the whole thing. And then, of course, we started to talk with the manager who was interested why we were having so much interest in her bookshop. And um, then after lots of talking and that we also saying that we wanted to copy this thing and put it inside Rotterdam, we, um, uh, when the process became, had, sort of was further and further, we also had a location, we negotiated location in, in a museum in Rotterdam, Museum Boymers van Beuning. Then we got their stock lists, which is actually their treasure, you could say, because that's their basis of knowledge. And then from that stock list, we worked our way through building this, uh, this bookshop and negotiated with publishers, with uh, distributors, etc. Mainly in London, actually, because in the Netherlands they were not very interested in doing this. So in the end, we got what was it, 5,000 books uh, from distributors and publishers in uh, London on a sale return base. We filled the whole bookshop. They were for sale because we thought it was really important to have them available. Uh, we could not reorder very fast. Uh, Amazon didn't exist, so when the books were sold, we had these kind of red labels that replaced the books. So increasingly, the labels became more and more, so more red tabs in the in the bookshop. And um, it was also installed during the first manifesto, which was a lucky shot for us because then a lot of people actually also saw it. No? And still, sometimes if we meet somebody who went to this first manifesto in Rotterdam, we say, oh yeah, there was this marvelous bookshop. You know, but they, it was, well, it was a piece, but it was also a functioning work in that sense. Well, we also had to do, because it was actually, the, the museum had two bookshops because they have their own bookshop. And of course, the bookshop manager of the museum didn't like it at all because we were selling and the profits were not go going to him but they were going to us which was I think also an interesting principle you know you make some sort of artwork which is in principle generating b uh, money in principle but you also find out it's very hard to make money from running a bookshop <laughs> at the same time and it was also because, like I said, we got the books on the sale return base, so everything that we sold, we could sort of cover the costs of the bookshop for, and the rest we had to send back also on our costs. And initially everything went quite well, actually, but then uh, there was the London crash, uh, the pound, what was it, yeah. went down, no, yeah, uh, went up. I don't know, with Soros, this whole thing. I forgot what, uh, how it actually went. But anyway, there was a big crash. So it was actually, you know, just on the edge that we managed to sort of play even with the whole, with the whole thing. And it, it was, in, in principle, it was a, you could see it as a sculpture because it was freestanding. So if you enter from one side, you could see the backside. So and when you came to the front and it looked totally different, you know, then you suddenly were faced with all these books. If you have questions in the meantime, you just shout and we try to answer them. Okay, now we make a big jump uh, to 2010 um, and we forget everything that was in between. Um, we thought actually it was interesting because we were selecting what sort of what sort of course, what sort of trajectory we would take through our work to present to you. 
And there's actually quite a lot of work uh, that we have made where people sleep or lay down, or there's beds, there's uh, sleeping with the film of Andy Warhol, there's different ways of you know moving around horizontally, basically, which I think is the best way of thinking. But we thought, well, let's not give them the impression that we only make these pieces while <laughs> people sleep. No, so it's not uh, it's not every not everything is about laying down. Huh? So this piece we wanted to present to you because there is it it we made this very much in relation to public but also in relation to a question a demand you could say an invitation um, we work a lot on invitation but this was actually almost like a commission or a competition so so there is always like when we are invited we are invited usually carte blanche so we can do whatever we want but they also people also invite us because of the work work we have done in the past so there's also expectations and it's a continuous negotiation of how you sort of feel free or light enough to take these these expectations not too heavy and to sort of maneuver let's say with them and around them and away from them sometimes no so this um uh, work is um uh, uh, uh made for anel anel is uh, an energy company in uh, europe italy uh, one of the biggest i think still and um, they have a two-year every year competition where they invite artists or in this case invite curators who then invite artists to make a proposal um, uh, and then the best proposal or the best proposal in their eyes wins the competition so we were invited by Hu Hanru who is a Chinese curator currently working at uh, Maxi I think yeah and um, um, we thought when he invited us, because it's in a way this question of you can you you can present everything you want, and um, uh, so in a way it's also a question of or it's the invitation to come up with an idea that you actually really really want to do. No, so that's how we took it, and um, uh, 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 there were there were some I would say some some brief. Eh? There was a brief from Enel who who sort of was laying out why they did this competition and what is important in their company that you could take in as an artist but you could also forget about it so there were issues like uh, sustainability uh, climate change already uh, extinction uh, all these different issues that were uh, uh, also part of their or that are still part of their uh, company and their their uh, their business you could say so we took these things in we embraced them in a way and um, uh, we thought uh, quite soon in the whole process we knew that we wanted to make something with butterflies as an indicator species as soon as uh, uh, environments change uh, butterflies and bees actually are one of the first species that sort of disappear that are very vulnerable and then sort of indicate how bad air is or earth or maybe pollution or poison etc etc but then the building where where this exhibition should take place, which is like a, a similar architecture as here, but then five times as big, I think. So using the building itself as a butterfly pavilion would be ridiculous, wouldn't work. So we were thinking of a container where to put these butterflies, how to sort of had to create some kind of a greenhouse, some kind of place where we could, would be able to contain, and that we could relate or could create a relationship between what the public is looking at, but also how this sort of exchange between these different spaces could take place. So um, then we came 
with the... You want to take over? <laughs> Could do. Yeah. Uh, as you can see here in the sketch, uh, then we came across uh, the first the house of Mies van der Rohe, this uh, Farnsworth house which he built in Chicago, Illinois. It's his most radical uh, house ever built because it only contains of glass and you know there's no uh, hiding from from so you're as close to nature as you can be even mrs farnsworth was totally unsatisfied she she sued uh, miss van der Rohe because there was too many mosquitoes inside and all sorts of things she didn't have any privacy but the main thing and it was built on poles so it was built near a river and it was it's and also taking in consideration that the, the the water would rise that it was still safe but what happened more and more not only through climate change but also through urbanization this it's a monument now it's it's getting flooded once in a while which is quite sad to see also. So for us, you know, this, this radical house was directly the, the, the main container to put this, this butterfly house in. So to make a copy, again. But also it's an indicator, no? Yeah. Like yeah, actually itself. really since the 90s, it started regularly flooding and now it's every so many years faster and faster or more regular than ever before. So they are thinking of moving it, but then, you know, you have the whole issue of heritage. Is this, is this where it should stay or not, etc., etc. So it's a really complicated and complex question, I think, in that sense. Yeah. And so, <coughs> again, we thought, okay, let's make a copy of the Farnsworth House, which we thought, okay, why not? Well, it could contain the butterflies. Yeah. That was actually yeah. the most important. Yeah. <coughs> so we had this plan, and I think I think going back, you know, we presented this is the model how we presented it because you have to make a proposal, and there were seven other artists, and you had to make a plan, and blah blah blah. Not not really thinking that we ever would be able to do it, but anyway, so we thought, okay, let's go for the radical anyway. So, and then we won the competition, so that meant also we had to build it. Which also, and then we came to to the conclusion that uh, the original was actually too big to host in the building. So here you can see the from above. So we had to shrink it uh, slightly, also to make it really. Yeah, it's seventy-five percent of the original, and uh, uh, looking at the original, I think it's actually better better size because the the original is quite big actually quite high as well this is i would say more human scale it's not miniature but it's lower it, it feels better i think if you're in there and also i think shrinking it to 75 percent sort of released us from this whole issue of copyrights etc so be, because it's a famous place so usually you can do these things i think as an artist unless think things or works become too successful and then maybe somebody will come after you and say well hey <laughs> pay <laughs> something like that but anyway so so we had to fit it um, and then when we when we were uh, the winner of this competition we were immediately invited to come to Milan and to work with a production company that is usually working uh, for film and with also other artists to produce works and we were assigned an architect Mar Mario Della Torre 
uh, who would uh, work on the whole project together with us. Because this, of course, is like, it's like, it's not only a big project, but it's also a big responsibility, or there's a lot of at stake, I would say, for the ANL, so it shouldn't fall apart when there would be people <coughs> visiting it. We also work with an entomologist, from, uh, so he was really an expert on, on the butterflies in Italy. He had his own butterfly farm, also to in order to bring also the butterflies in, but also not only to bring it in, but also to create the right atmosphere. Because if the atmosphere is not right, they don't fly. They just sit, or they die, or whatever. So it's very... And here you see a rendering. And of course, you had to have plants inside. So we have to also had to think about light. So the, the ceiling had to be open to in order to for the plants to, to grow. And here you see slowly the construction of the whole thing. The plants arriving. I'll just go quickly through. Yeah. Oh. You see the puppies, puppies. So you can also see how the butterflies came out. So the whole process you could follow. Yeah, we had an incubator there. There's also another image of it. And the, the grown butterflies, had so, so some butterflies came as puppies and some butterflies came in an envelope. It was really interesting. So they fold their wings together like this and they put them in an envelope. Uh, and they come from different rainforests all over the world. There's butterfly farms uh, in Indonesia and in the Philippines and in Brazil and so on. And in a way, these butterfly farms um, also uh, are a way to sort of save rainforest, or at, least that, at least that part, uh, from uh, destruction. And uh, the butterfly farms also deliver their butterflies to all the zoos in, in, uh, in Europe, basically. No? So at least that's where we, where we worked with. So, Part of this of this whole endeavor was also all the research, talking with people in the in the in the zoos uh, who have butterfly pavilions, as a pre preface also to our proposal to actually find out if let's say what we would sort of plan in the mind that that would also be possible and uh, uh, not cause any trouble. No, so we had to find out if it was doable, and it was. <coughs> so this is where it's um, finished. And then uh, the, the title is uh, taken from Escher. Uh, are you really sure a floor can't also be a ceiling, which is this kind of continuously turning around of where you are, not only top and bottom, but also front and back, in and out, etc. And like I said in the beginning, for us, for us it was also very important that we would create, let's say, a world inside, but also a world outside. So the people, uh, the, the audience would, would be spectator, but they would also be part of that spectacle once they would be inside uh, the butterfly pavilion. And the entomologist, I think that's also important to say, had students over um, who were there for the full duration of the exhibition, and they would also talk to the public and inform and etc. to talk about uh, the species and what it needed to be and how they needed to be taken care of, etc. etc. No? And the importance also of the issue of that they are indicators in, in that sense. Do you want to stop or? Well, do you want to continue talking about the work that's in this exhibition and how that's kind of extended on from this work or is that something you'd rather flesh out in conversation? Or? Um, we could f I would say that we could flesh that out in the conversation. I don't know how, are you, do you still see, want to see one work or you have questions? No? 
No questions? Huh? More? Okay. Yeah. Then we do pr probably one more, I think. Um, yeah. So this is not our building. Uh, I wish. <laughs> This is a building by uh, Herzog and Dummeron. It's in, uh, in Miami. Um, Jos and me were invited by a curator who is working in this museum, which is the Paris Art Museum. It's a private museum. Now, it went through a lot of stages with lots of different names. But Mr. Paris, who is a very rich project developer, he donated his collection to the museum or part of the, mu part of the collection to the museum plus some millions of dollars. 60. And then the building was built, the collection is there, he is in the board and the building carries his name. So it's really interesting how these kind of things are going. Herzog and Dommeron um, uh, built this building also on stelts, eh, on poles, uh, on the side of the sea, not the river, eh, the bay, you would say Miami Bay. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, also built in this way to prevent the, the building from flooding. So on the ground floor there's parking garage, or it's like really the ground floor, not underneath, like you see here. And uh, the building around is like totally lifted from the, from, the, from the ground, so to prevent it from flooding. Like so many museums eh, in the world are being flooded, you know, there's for example Belgrade Museum who has the collection down in the cellars and the river is coming and, you know, horrible. <laughs> so, uh, maybe the next image, yeah, this is one of the, as the story goes, this is the inspiration for uh, Herzog and Dummeron. These are these, they are also called stealth buildings or stealth houses, they are in the sea around Miami and they're just standing there. Some are more in a ruinous state, some are uh, more uh, inhabited still or function as summer houses, I don't know what. There's many different, different kinds, but I really like them because they sort of put together somehow, no? So I wanted to show you this image to see where these architects were looking at and how this is, is influencing this, no? So Miami is um, uh, not only at the sea, it's also almost at sea level. So I think it's only the caves are like this, no? And the sea is rising um, uh, pretty quickly. There's maps, uh, uh, interactive maps that show in 2020, 2030, most of Miami Beach will be gone. And already there is a lot of flooding every year. And that's really bad, you could say, for the inhabitants because this salty water sort of mixes with the drinking water and it causes all sorts of problems for agriculture, drinking water, uh, living uh, circumstances, etc., etc. So all, um, yeah, you know, one of the forerunners, you could say, of what is bound to happen when the sea rises. And then, at the same time, there is, uh, of course, climate deniers or climate change deniers. And at the moment when we were invited to think about a project, there was a lot of um, uh, discussion going on because in the public um, realm, eh, in, the, in the media, um, uh, there was emphasis on, on um, uh, the governor and the government in Miami, but also mainly Florida actually, uh, that wanted to ban, or that actually banned, all the words that had to do with climate change. So sustainability, climate change, global warming, water rising, I don't know, all these kind of different words would not or should not be used in office, official offices. And once people did that, if they did it, they were fired. No? So it's really like trying to erase, let's say, the reality that is daily there, eh, and that's, that's actually really pressing in such a city, to sort of push it 
outside of the of the of the language, uh, maybe to make it go. I don't know. So we thought that was interesting, and we also thought like the, this issue of language. You know, I think it's really interesting what that what that does. No, if we don't speak about it, then it doesn't exist. If we speak about it, then do we? Then is it then that we only see it? You know, all these different issues um, are coming about. So we thought. That we should function or that we should focus on on this use of language. Yeah. So what we did is we created a training center for parrots uh, in the museum on the ground floor. Um, uh, maybe as a way around this whole. There is, I think, in these kind of things, it's always like. How, how do you address things? Do you do it directly? Do you do, do it with a way around, with some humor? Uh, how do you invite people to think about things? Huh? Because I think, for example, climate change is one of those issues that's so big that actually most of us don't even want to go there, no? think about it. So this training center for parrots, these were parrots from Miami, born and raised in Miami. We had five, six, six. And we built a cage for them with the help of a, of a, of a, of a how do you call it, animal doctor, vet, vet, veterinarist. And um, with the breeder uh, of the parrots um, who, uh, with whom we talked how big the cage should be, how much space they should have, what sort of toys they should have not to get bored or not to get into a war zone with each other, you know, so that they would have enough space to, to feel happy. And um, we would teach them some new language. That was the idea. So maybe next. So we took um, from uh, the wasteland the poem of uh, T. S. Eliot. We took the sentences. Uh, oh, I know it's a very long, a very long essayistic, you know, expose of 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 land and waste and war and devastation, etc. And from that um, a poem, we isolated only those sentences that are sort of activated, that are actual, no? that are not describing something, but that are calling somehow. No? Something went wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Well, you can figure it out, no? I don't know what happened. Anyway, so, and these uh, sentences uh, were performed by actors in Rotterdam. We went to a studio with young students and um, uh, they were sung the sentences, they were whispered, they were shouted, they were in all different ways and we sort of created, you could say, a musical score from that musical song. And this, this song was being played, not on a, on a, on a wildly violent uh, sound level, but was played in that space or on top of that space. And uh, the parrots were um, in training to, um, to, to learn those words. Mm. And the guards were also helping and repeating, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so in the way the speculation was that after six months, the, the exhibition was six months, that they would return, you know, and they would live their life further on in different locations. And then once in a while they would cite this poem, you know, in unexpected so we didn't know if they really would learn that's also the question the 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 trainer said of course they will but i'm not sure if they did <laughs> yeah so maybe sure. now it's time for questions no no problem yeah <laughs> so you've spoken 
about how your work, which is often site-specific, sort of addresses some of the needs or necessities that you perceive within the communities that you're working within. And so I guess my first question to you is, as international artists who had not been to Australia before, you came for your site visit in March, what were some of those concerns that immediately struck you within the context of Australia or Melbourne specifically? Um, well, the, the concerns are being fed by our previous observations, no? so it's part of our practice, you could say. So I think things that happened with, the, uh, with uh, considering this piece uh, also become then part of you. No? So it's like we, bring, we take those pieces along with us, or we take this thinking and this seeing things, let's say, along with us. So when we were invited here by you, um, of course, we didn't know anything about Australia in the sense that we haven't been there and um, had no clue or maybe had, had ideas of how things look, but nothing, very superfluous. In a way, you could say maybe, uh, why, and I think that's also a discussion, no? why, what do international artists, when they travel all around and then they land somewhere, like what, what are the observations worth no? in, in a context that, that is like having its own things, its own problems, its own potential, etc. I think, yeah, and on the same hand, I think sometimes when you are from far or strange or don't know these circumstances very deeply, you also don't know the, the little nitty-gritty that is, that is going on, etc. but you sort of see the bigger picture somehow, no? That is not only connected, I would say, to Australia, but is a larger story. So when we were uh, invited by you, we started looking at what ACA was, what this building is, uh, no windows, uh, uh, corten steel, hey, like rusty steel, um, uh, we looked at the history of the exhibition space. We found out that all of you know, of course, that it used to be in the botanical gardens, in a cottage, and that it actually started in 1983. And that was also the year of the dust storm in Melbourne. So those kind of things fell in place, no? Or fell, you know, we were searching, no? On their website, there was a really good history of, of everything and what was the ground for, these, for, this, for this space, which was artist run, if I'm not mistaken, in the beginning, or artist initiated, no? Actually, shamefully, don't know. Okay, I thought it was, I recognized something that I thought, that's great, no? Um, anyway. So th then we looked at these kind of images of these dust storms that are mythical, no? If you, if, if you, if you look at them, it's like, this is like, uh, I don't know what to call it, no? I'm not biblical, but it's something there, no? Somehow. So we were fascinated, of course, coming from a land of clay and wet, no? <laughs> dust and, and, and enormous dust storms in this way, and then also the devastating effects after this, when the, when the storm is down, then the fire starts, etc. So we learned very pre pretty quickly that this is a land of extreme extremes, no? Much more extreme than, for example, uh, Europe, I would say. And um, uh, then we thought, okay, we should do probably something with this dust idea or this feeling or what is this, no? What does that mean if you live in an extreme country? What does it mean if the continent is so big and that there is, I wouldn't say nothing in the middle because that would be nonsense, but everyone, 22 million, 24 million live around, no? On the edge, which is only 5 million more than in the Netherlands, no? So it's, it's, it's really 
intense in that sense. No, you have to cross a lot of distances and you cannot walk from one city to another. We could, we could if we want, walk to another city. No, we could walk to The Hague, as you know. No, <laughs> possible. It's a long way, not too long, but it's doable. So when we came here in, uh, in February, March, yeah, uh, we, we wanted to speak with many people that were um, uh, uh, thinking, working with the issues of the land, the issue, the issues of where, where, what, what will happen, what happened this with this land throughout, you know, not centuries, but I don't know, millions of thousands of centuries, not millions, thousands of centuries. How the geology is part of that, how the uh, European agriculture that was imported here by the Europeans, of of course, uh, how that also broke down the soil, uh, why this dust storm happened, and uh, many of them after that. Um, and yeah, we talked with many, many different people. Dermot was one of them, um, uh, a biologist, a writer, uh, different people during that week. We had maybe eight or nine people that we spoke with, no? And then from that, we thought, okay, this because first you have a, hin a hunch somehow, and then we thought, yeah, yeah. Actually, we want to do something with this, with this issue of land, with soil. What soil is? Because of course, sand is not nothing. In sand, there's a lot, a lot of life that we don't see. So, but but it's there. It's also here. Huh? Um, uh, we wouldn't be able to bring this into the Rijksmuseum probably, because then they would be ah no. Buildings with a collection cannot have this kind of life material in their museums, no? So it's all these different things that are so much not only part of, of, of factual material, but also, let's say, part of what we deal with every, every, every one of us on a daily basis without even knowing, no? So this, this land, territory, soul is super important. So that was, does this answer your question, actually? I don't know. Yeah, it does. I mean, I was asking what you sort of immediately perceived as kind of concerns that were specific to this context. And so then how does your interest in Plato's text, the symposium, come into it? Because when you were talking a little bit about um, Yoss's kitchen and it being sort of a drunken <laughs> collecting, a collective space where people kind of came together, it made me think about how you were interested in the original meaning of the term symposium, which was sort of something that happened after dinner, after a few drinks, when people loosened up and really could kind of tell each other what they really thought. So how do, how do those two ideas link for you, this kind of interest in changing conditions of the climate and then this interest in kind of collective narratives and storytelling? Um, well, we felt uh, like in a way also like with this piece that we felt, uh, or with uh, many other pieces actually, like how do, you, how do you generate something like a platform where it is possible for people to speak, to speak about, to speak with, to speak in dialogue, no? Um, but we didn't want to organize something that would be, as long as the exhibition, a continuous changing of discussions there. It could take place. It would, uh, would be great if it took place, no? But that would be something that, that we would like the piece itself to generate somehow. So when we were thinking, okay, what is it actually to speak, to negotiate? Because this land, the land issue is all about negotiation. How far do we want to go? Uh, how, do, how do we uh, negotiate economics, uh, capital, uh, uh, human issues, etc. This, in, this, in this complex soup somehow? How do we deal with that? No? 
And then we were looking indeed into symposium. We, we thought about symposium in itself. And then um, the I, I think the symposium in Plato's time was much more exciting than today. No, this is like, I don't know, this is not symposium, no, but it's like so many, so many of these discussions take place with the speakers and then there's the audience and then there's questions and answers and then everybody goes home, no? And then sometimes there's a, a little bit of stretching these kind of formats, but you, it's more or less the same and I don't think they all, I don't think they work enough, I think, no? Then you have specialists and you have the audience, I don't know, it's, it's not working. I think the issue, for example, with this piece, I think this should be owned by every one of us, no? I think that's really important. Maybe not owned, let's say, okay, I own this piece so I can take it, etc. but it's, uh, the issue is owned by everybody and should be addressed by everybody in that sense. So the idea of the symposium in Plato's time was actually exactly like you say, but also taking a much longer time than an hour. And they were hanging out on day beds, so that's why we took in uh, somehow of an abstracted form of a day bed um, uh, around this whole thing. Um, uh, people could uh, would lay down in, in, in Plato's time. They would discuss, they would uh, eat grapes, probably have some sex here and there, I don't know, uh, drink a lot, eat a lot, uh, discuss a lot, uh, and then maybe after one day or two days they would go home and, uh, you know, bring the issues with them and spread them around, basically. So it's intense, no? I think that's really important. So the issue of the symposium in that sense was um, for us informing uh, the form it takes here. And I'm fully aware of that, the fact that we didn't create Plato's symposium here. But I think, you know, it's, it's not sort too late. No, not too late. You, <laughs> can take, you, can, you guys can take over. <laughs> um, so just to return to something you said earlier, which was how the work, even though it's responding to this site, is continuing some of the concerns that you've had more broadly in your practice. And I wanted to um, speak to a particular quote that I found today in your book, uh, With Love from the Kitchen, which we have for sale at the Acker Bookshop, should anyone be interested. But Charles Escher suggests that the motivation for your art originates in an idealistic view of the possibility of art, which is quite a broad and big aim. And so I wanted to ask you if you could elaborate on what you see as some of the possibilities that art might offer, particularly in the current context that we're in at the moment. It's a book of 2010. <laughs> 2007, still even, relevant. I don't know, seven. Yeah, I think it's still relevant. Um, Charles is now talking about demodernizing our society, the yeah, world society. Modest, modest proposals. Modest also. proposals, yeah, in that book he's talking about the modest proposals. I, th I think, uh, and maybe in a way, I indicated that also with the, with the piece Speechless uh, that we did for Pam, but also here in this case, like how do you, um, uh, with art, as an artist, how do you generate, let's say, interest in issues that concern us, and not only us, but that are wider issues, I think. Uh, how do you bring them about without um, uh, becoming a teacher or becoming a dictator or becoming uh, somebody who, sh who is telling people how to think, no? And I think that's really, that is really important. So what we try to do is to sort of in a way, um, create a situation where we eventually lure in people somehow. And then when they are there, and when, then they can experience it on their own uh, uh,
conditions on their own premises. Now, in this case, we invited uh, seven, and maybe that's in, important to say, we invited seven people uh, to write a letter to the land um, uh, based on, on the symposium of Plato, where there were seven people that were, that were partaking in that, in that whole thing. So there was a judge, and there was a rhetoric, and there was a, a host, and there were different people. So we tried to uh, sort of characterize some of the people that we invited to write a letter. Uh, to the land, and, and in a way that is creating, let's say, a first circle, you could say, of people who are, um, uh, because of the invitation, they uh, are already engaged if they say yes, no? So they are already, let's say, uh, uh, you call accomplices, no? Com complicit, um, yeah. Uh, mutual partners in, crime. partners in crime somehow so you sort of enlarge that circle and by by doing that and by involving these different voices of course then there's the actors so it becomes bigger some letters were read by the letter writers themselves sometimes they were uh, read by voice actors no so it becomes larger and larger then there's the public that moves in and sort of lays down and listens to the letter and maybe talks to the goes around etc etc so it's like open trying to open up, let's say, such a situation, and uh, by doing that, generating, let's say, maybe the possibility also to think about these <coughs> issues. Yeah, in, in a way, if you look back, you know, even going back to the first thing, the kitchen, you, you start wondering why is a kitchen in a museum or a bookshop, you know, all these things. So you enter, you drink your coffee in the kitchen, and then you start thinking, why is it here, or the book? You know, not realizing that the bookshop actually is an art piece, but you don't realize it because you, you buy the book. You know, and these little gestures also is what trying to, to yeah. Yeah, maybe also with the bookshop is a good example because like Jos talked a little bit about the negotiations we had with the bookshop owner of the museum and he was also one of his arguments not to have it there was also like ah nobody in Rotterdam buys any books nobody's reading etc and art, we said art books, yeah. art books or theory books that were most of the books and we we thought yes they they would if the, if it's there no, that if, if there's the opportunity to engage or the opportunity to encounter something that you may not know, like we had in the, in the ICA bookshop, we did not know what we were searching for, but then, it's, then you bump into it and it meets you and it wants you as well, no, somehow. So that is what we try to open up and I think that's what I would say in general art is opening up, yeah. And I would say that your practice is very successful in doing that. So even for this particular work, it sort of starts with a conversation between yourselves, maybe myself as well, but then the seven writers, the additional readers, and then, of course, it gets extended to the audience who experiences that work. And as you said, it's an issue that sort of is everyone's, and so the responses are valid as well. And so I wondered if you could speak to one of the central concerns that this exhibition seeks to address, which is, you know, can we work better together into the future? Are we really greater together? Is that possible? And should that even be the aim? I think everybody's greater together. <laughs> you know, not, not, not necessarily greater people, no. There's, you can also be great, greater criminals together, no. I think that it helps any to do field. that. To, yeah, any field is, is working better if you do it together, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, but also for, for our work, I think it's, it, it, it wouldn't exist the way it would exist without the collaboration, without the inspiration and creativity of others, 
you know, and also giving them a platform also to 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 do something here. Speaking of others, and before we go to the audience to ask questions, I did want to ask one audience member, Dermot Henry, who contributed. Oh, oh, hang on, hang on one second. <laughs> no, I'll come to you in just a second, but I just want to ask Dermot, who is a scientist, and Dermot contributed one of the letters to the land uh, as part of the piece and from his position as a scientist. And I wondered, Dermot, you know, as artists and definitely for myself as a curator, I'm quite sort of used to asking the impossible of people. You know, ask, I put these kind of suggestions out into the ether and quite often I'm quite surprised about the generosity or the good in people when they accept a proposal. And so what I wanted to ask you was, you know, what your initial response was when you received the letter from Lisbeth and Yoss that was asking you to participate in this project. I, well, I guess, um, well, I was quite honoured first and slightly terrified. Um, I had met Lisbeth uh, a few months earlier and we had a nice, long, wide-ranging um, conversation. And uh, um, so I, I thought about it. I mean, I was happy to do something, but I was a bit concerned whether I would do the right thing. Um, I, I liked the, the idea because... Um, uh, as a, I'm a geologist and I sort of see the land as a memory. You know, we look at, it, it sort of records all the processes that it's been exposed to over millions of years. And, you know, as a geologist, my job to try and unravel some of those events. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, I'm used to writing f for scientific purposes, which is sort of a reasonably regimented process. But when you write something that's got a mixture of science and personal about it, as I did, it's slightly terrifying that you think, oh, that's going to be, you know, somehow in a major gallery in Melbourne because um, you're putting a bit more of your personal self into it. So I can certainly empathise with how artists must feel when they put their work there and some critic, you know, as you said previously, thought it was crap or something, you know, that you're putting a lot of yourself into it, whereas with the science, it, it's, there's sort of a methodology to it. Um, but I also see the science-art connection is exceedingly important. Um, I think, particularly around the climate um, debate, I think we need to make an emotional connection with people. And I agree with you about the language. Um, to me, I think of, for example, you know, we're having the Royal Commission on Child Abuse. For a long time, people talk about child abuse, but it, it, to people, that can mean all sort of levels of things. But if you used a term like child rape, they would have a much better, clearer picture of what they're really talking about and I think with with climate too I mean we don't hear things like acidification of the oceans if people start thinking about the oceans becoming much more acidic they can really connect that that's a bad thing you know because they know that acid's not good for you so I do think there's a lot of power to be looked at around the language we're using at the moment climate change to me is a little bit sugar-coated and wishy-washy um, so I, I think the emotional connection that comes from the art um, linking to the science is very, very important um, for getting the, the getting the scientific messages out there and making the community engage. Thank you, Dermot. Yeah, interesting that you say that we have been working in Brazil with a, a scientist and uh, um, a particularly a specialist in the rainforest and the destruction of the rainforest, and he. He said also, similar to what you say, no, the issue of language and also 
further on down the road, the issue of storytelling, the cre creating of uh, 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 narrations, no, basically, is what, why he sort of also turns to the art and to the artists, no, to involve them in, in uh, helping negotiate these issues, no? Because he says, like, scientific language um, uh, uh, doesn't reach, let's say, the heads of the people. He had a whole story about the two halves that are not bridged, no, in, yeah. our, in our mind, no? So we either are there or there. So had this issue of, of some things being too big or um, uh, being incomprehensible or not, cannot sort of, you know, get, we cannot get it down into our body and imagination, basically, then we need imagination to sort of help us imagine that, no? Yeah. Like, yeah. Does anyone have any questions? It's your time to shine. anyway is it um, thanks very much for putting tonight on I sort of feel that the, the whole situation is getting out of hand somehow people aren't accepting the future you, you'll understand what I mean but I don't think any most people here will I mean it seems as though we're just coasting along towards oblivion and um, you know, obviously I thank you for putting this on and uh, I can remember Dust Thomas myself. They are a very they're a different sort of situation really. It's like being in a dream world, isn't it? It's a bit like I went into the, um, the storeroom tonight with the shelving. Now I've often thought about that. That's something I've thought about a lot actually. So it's walking, I was, what was there walking through a sort of past situation, something I'm always contemplating. What would you put in the storeroom for the future? I'm not an artist, I should say. I mean, I'm only coming along here because I heard the interview on the Radio National with uh, Bick, I think it was. Uh, Michael Cathcart, wasn't it? Oh, you Bick, are you? Who's Bick? <laughs> <laughs> You're both Bick, are you? Anyway, um, I've, got, I've got a friend named Bick as well, actually, strangely enough. Uh, they call it, but uh, they're English. Uh, but anyway, that's their surname. But, um, you know, thanks for, thanks for bringing this up, but I'm very pleased that someone at last has brought it up because I think that it's just, it's somehow it's just going under the radar all the time. No one seems to want to talk about it. No one seems to want to accept what's going on in the world. And even I'm frightened to talk to people about it, generally speaking, because, um, you know, it, I just feel as though it's just too much for them and too much for me, if you know what I mean. You know, I feel as though that's why, that's why politicians ignore it, I think. They, they don't want to be part of a, an unpleasant story, and it is an unpleasant story, really. Well, it's fairly unpleasant anyway, unpleasant-ish, if I can put it that way. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't think there's any easy answer to all this, but um, anyway, I thought I'd let, get your comments on that. And this is the question for you then. I'll, I'll finish with the question. Would you, have, would you have done this same sort of discussion, had this sort of, same sort of discussion in Holland, do you think, or not? That's really, uh, that was something that occurred to me doing it. I mean, would you have done? I mean, it's, it's very mean, strange. Yes, you would have done, would you? You mean and how, what would your response have been over there from the audience? <laughs> Different from here? <laughs> 
Hard to tell. The same. I mean. No, it's that's all. That's always difficult to say. No, if the response would be the same or similar, people are people. No, so they have responses in their own way and uh, from their own background. Or like the Netherlands is like a totally different country. We we have it's extreme in its own sense, but it's extreme in its in how it's made totally. No. Yeah, yeah. For example, our studio is at, uh, more than three meters below sea level, so you already. Yeah. But we don't but notice that. But at the, at the same time, also, I never realized that you know the Netherlands is the the second biggest exporter of of vegetables worldwide. And also, you know, pigs. So they they have so many pigs, like like eighty million pigs. Or Well, I think it also depends where you do the talk, you know, like it's it's a very homogeneous audience in, in a way. We also have a lot of skepticism of, of people. So if you do it somewhere else, probably you would have an, a totally different discussion. I think the discussion is constantly going on. You know, we have uh, 18 million people in a very small country and, you know, we have to do something about lots of things. So we're dealing, and there's a, a constant discussion going on on, on on several topics, you know. It begins with, the, with your personal driving in your car to, to all sorts of things. So, yeah. But it's hard to tell. Sorry? Eighteen. Eighteen. Maybe there are other questions. Yeah, does anyone else have questions? Right, copies are not not something that we do every time, but we like to think our uh, our work, let's say, through the issue or through the notion of the model. So, um, in in some cases, then the model is a copy, and in some other cases, the model is perhaps could also be a text or an essay film or something. No, so so the co the the copy is not, let's say, um, uh, as the color of red for a painting who only paints, or a painter who only paints red, for example. No, so it's like, it's. I think it's somehow, sometimes, a very useful tool or a very useful um, uh, method, you could say, to sort of drill into the issues and to bring them out. No, so like for example, with the bookshop. Um, uh, it would be nonsense, or it would, for me, it would be nonsense, let's say, to do something else than the copy, because actually the real thing works so so well, so if you want to draw that in, if you want to show or to make, to create this kind of situation of experience, then why would you make something else, no? We are, we have, I, I would say in general, I think, I'm, I'm not necessarily interested in bringing new things into the world, but I'm more interested in remixing, in 
bringing them to into different constellations somehow um, uh, to to sort of open up uh, the story. I don't know if that answers your question. So the, so the copy, but nevertheless, I would say that the copy is also interesting uh, art historian thing. No, I I really I'm really interested in how the copy functioned, for example, in the Louvre or here with the landscape painters that were also copying each other's paintings, etc., etc., to learn the, the, the skill, eh? but also by copying something or by, by, yeah, by, by replicating something, you also think about what this is that you are copying. No? It's not like, not like a, a, a brainless thing to do, actually. It's actually working your way through something to get to the core of that something, what that could do and mean and uh, generate. I'm more interested in what art can do than what it could mean, but yeah. Yeah, I think especially because uh, the original and the copy were the same space for four months, you know, and then it's we were already discussing what is it, what what we are looking at, you know, is it a, a copy or is it the kitchen, is it an art piece, all these things, and then the moment you bring it somewhere else, and it changes its function. Of you, you know, like first it was only a film set, a display. Then the moment you you, you transport it somewhere else, and it starts functioning as a kitchen. So what's going on then? What are you looking at? Is it art then, or you know, all these questions start raising? And then I think that's why also the, the, the you know the the critic had a lot of problems with it, like defining what he actually was looking at, because he was saying. I can buy better coffee in the in the in the coffee shop of the museum than I get here. But I said it's free with us. So you know all these discussions it's like Yeah. <coughs> Damn it. Uh, <coughs> Sorry. Are you are you going to continue to um through your art explore the sort of land and climate issue deeper? Or continue on? No. Yeah, I think so. Um um like we spoke about it shortly before this, no, before we we were in this public uh, presentation, there there have what we are interested in here is this painting of uh, Eugène uh, von Gerhard, von Gerhard um, uh, from the previous century, probably, no, who painted this volcano landscape, and then this painting. That was also copied a lot. No, this painting or his paintings, maybe in general, became an example for uh, reforestation to uh, re reinstate, let's say, the original land, how it looked like. No, I find these really interesting issues. No, that sort of uh, that that a, a painting is, let's say. Uh, on, of course, like an early photo photograph, you know, is bringing this not only back, but that actually people use use the painting. Then it becomes a very useful object to uh, uh, to help instruct them how to reinstate that land, and then to sort of extend that. No, and um, 
uh, well, I imagine now we are starting to investigate this, but I imagine when, when thinking about these issues, there's also thinking about what is agriculture, no? Um, uh, what, uh, like for example in Brazil, we did a whole project um, uh, which was in the form of a public program, so we were there for two months, that was talking a lot about and with and through uh, uh, people that were living in the rainforest, uh, indigenous people, uh, people who were fighting against uh, gold rushers, let's say, you know, different, different uh, climate uh, experts, etc. Um, uh, talking about the issue of the land, not as something that is, uh, through all, I would name, uh, that's wrong, no, through all these different layers, no, if you look, for example, at a map of the of the um, uh, rainforest, you can look at it in so many different ways. No, you can look at it from top down, and then you see green. No, if you sort of um, uh, uh, and th those maps are there as well, then they become abstracted. So there is so much wood, there's so much soil, there's so much where we can uh, put cows. So we have beef. We can get the gold from there, the oil from there, we can cut it up, etc. We make like very nice abstract segments and then we can cut up the segments and we can sell it. No? So that's basically how we sort of look through, uh, and that's again language, no? looking, looking at something that through acts of abstraction becomes something else and then can be abstracted literally. No? taken out, basically. So I think these issues are, f for us in our practice, really important. Not only looking at the rainforest or looking at the dikes or looking at Australia, etc. But it's really um, the issue of, of, of information and knowledge and how information and knowledge is sort of not only coming to us, no, but also how we can reach it. No? So if we look at a map, for example, of the rainforest that is fully abstracted, no, and if we look at it with, with um, uh, 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 I would say, eyes that want to make economical profit, that's very handy. Then we can say, okay, we can segment here, we take something, et cetera, et cetera. But then if we, too, if we look at that, sim that similar map, but maybe from the issue of how the forest is being built up, eh, we, we um, uh, have been talking, we know an, an architect who is interested in looking at the forest, not just because he's interested, but to, to uh, indicate or to prove actually that um, old urbanizations, old urban forms, civilizations, have been taken place there, no? while there are no stone ruins, because the people in the rainforest um, uh, were, were moving uh, from, from place to place, etc. But they were cultivating the rainforest. Actually, there is now lots of proof that the whole rainforest in the Amazon is cultivated. No? So the cultivation of something that goes very far and that is very precise, actually, if you can prove that, then you can also prove that the people that are being pushed out, actually, of the rainforest or of the Amazon because there's other interests, etc., they can actually claim back their land because it's their land. No? So then you get suddenly into a political and social and uh, uh, legal issues. And, and that's a matter of, look, of looking at something. And I think yeah, that's not necessarily only the land, but that's something that is always there, no? that's around. Like you, you were saying, like you're a geologist, you read through the lands, 
know what have what are the what are the events that happen to it by geological impacts, but also by weather impacts probably or by human impacts maybe that's another territory another discipline but again i think if these disciplines sort of start talking with each other and that's maybe also where art sort of comes in not only but i think it's really important that all these dif disciplines talk with each other and sort of uh, connect skills with each other uh, to to make to sort of you know cre create push these things to the surface so that they become visible and not hidden that's important that's probably all we have time for this evening. If anyone has any additional questions, feel free to ask them directly to the artists after this event. But leaving it on the use of art and interdisciplinary and what we can achieve together is probably a good point to end it. So thank you, Lisbeth, and thank you, Jos, and thank you all for coming. Thank you.